0: Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or well, what
1: about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams.
0: And I'm Danny Gold, And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world.
1: We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it and we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it.
0: The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today?
1: Oh Doing pretty well. The, uh, the commute in, I don't know if you had some trouble coming in, but it is raining cats and dogs
0: and the worm is loving it all. He was rolling around yeah. out
1: there, but uh, we made it in.
0: We're here. The worm was actually uh, being a crossing guard at a, at a flooded intersection. Oh, really? Where, uh, the way, and the way I came in, yeah.
1: Oh, no kidding. Well, I think uh, I think one end of him was being the crossing guard and the other end of him was uh, frolicking, which is what I saw in the, uh, in the route I took. Him.
0: Well, today's episode, Lance, has uh, I wouldn't say frolicking or crossing guard or anything like that. This episode is with a woman named Sarah Kayleen. Who has been on television on HLN and CNN's Helen the Heartland? She is an investigator, a criminal behaviorist, and she's kind of a friend of the program. She was going to uh, come to the American Crime Festival and do a presentation. Of course, uh, the American Crime Festival it w- was this crime festival that we were going to be a part of that didn't happen in November, but she had signed up uh, and and it got it got canceled. So. We decided to circle back and speak with her about her career and talk to her, get to know her a little bit.
1: Yeah, she's a wonderful person. Uh, It would have been really nice to have seen what she brought to the table uh, at the American Crime Fest. And it would have been nice to have a cup of coffee with her out on the boardwalk uh, watching the sunrise over the Atlantic. Um, But that, like you said, didn't happen. So maybe there'll be another opportunity in the future. But uh, her among the uh, the other people that were potential uh, panelists and guests at the American Crime Fest, uh, we decided, you know, let's give them a platform uh, anyway. So, yeah, we're uh, checking her off the list. And it was a it was a pleasure to have her on the show and sarah's involvement in hell in the heartland was based on the cold case of laura bible and ashley freeman and these were two teenagers from oklahoma who disappeared in december of 1999 and the trailer that the freemans lived in was burned to the ground so sarah and crime author investigator jacks miller they led the team as they uh, investigated what happened to these two young women
0: that's a great show, and we have a great chat with Sarah, so we hope you enjoy it. But before we play the interview, we've got to tell you about a couple of new live shows that are happening with us in uh, in 2020, Lance.
1: I know. We had such a good time with the uh, duo Patrick and Jillian with a G from True Crime Obsessed. We had such a good time uh, joining them along with Maggie Freeling in Brooklyn, we were at the Bell House, and that live show went so well that they decided to tack a couple more on. And in March, we will be in Boston at Royale, which is a, uh, a theater that um, I, uh, I remember as a kid. It used to be a, a nightclub or like a dance club. I think that was called Avalon. But now it's Royale, and uh, we'll probably not be dancing, but uh, it's going to prove <laughs> to be uh, another, another great event. Can't wait for this.
0: Oh boy, the old Avalon. I didn't know that. I definitely went there in my uh, my club days when I was maybe like 19 or 20. Yep, right there
1: in the heart of the theater district. If you, uh, if you know where the Wang Theater is, it's pretty much right across the street.
0: And we're going to be in Philadelphia on the next night. So we're going to be in Boston on March 20th, 2020. And we're going to be in Philadelphia on Saturday, March 21st, 2020 at Underground Arts. So check it out. You can find links to buy tickets find them uh, probably in the show notes here or you could go to www.truecrimeobsessed.com slash
1: c-us-live that's truecrimeobsessed.com slash c-us-live
0: okay so hope you enjoyed this interview with sarah kayleen and make sure to follow her on twitter she is kayleen sarah thank you very much Welcome to Crawl Space. We are being joined by Sarah Kaleen. Sarah, how are you today? I'm well. How are you, gentlemen?
1: Oh, we're doing great. Thank you for uh, hopping on. And um, we know you have a busy schedule. You are probably, I mean, aside from Mike Morford and Cloyd uh, Steiger, the most famous person we've ever had on the show.
2: Oh, my gosh. That's uh, very, very kind of you to put me in that company. I appreciate it. I'm not sure it's deserved, but I will definitely take it. Thank you.
0: Thank <laughs> no. Anytime. Absolutely. (laughs) So, um, so what is it that you do now? Uh, you, you've got a lot of titles out there that that I've seen. Um, what what is it that you like to be uh, called like that, that you prefer to be called?
2: Well, gosh, I'm not really sure. Um, I think, you know, what they call me on, on HLN and on new stuff when I do uh, consultant work as criminal behaviorist, yeah, um, which is right, which is, uh, you know, in reference to what I studied um, in postgrad. So it's it's sort of the same world as forensic psychology, but doesn't require that I go and do, um, you know, the practicals and the labs and stuff like that. So it's it's basically the same um, the same type of work and focusing on, on criminal psychology, but without, you know, I'm not trying to pretend that I am a, you know, a practicing psychologist essentially. So that's what that kind of academic title is. Um, as for what I do day to day, I think criminal investigator or homicide investigator is, is accurate. I mean, that's what I'm doing. That's what is essentially paying the bills. Um, as, as much as it's paying the bills, um, you know, and and that's what I tend to be focusing on even when I'm doing other projects. So even if I'm doing television production uh, or, you know, hopefully writing or podcasting or whatever, at the end of the day, what I'm always working on is trying to solve cold cases.
1: And now you are a former police officer uh, with like a decade of uh, service. Is that, yes. is that? correct? Yes,
2: that's correct. So okay. I. I. Um, I did have about a decade of, of, um, police work, both federal and municipal, but primarily municipal. I, um, did the bulk of my time as an officer in a suburban Columbus, Ohio department. And I did work there, uh, on patrol, uh, for the most part, third shift. So that kind of middle of the night stuff, you know, the fun stuff of, of driving fast and yelling at people and going to bar fights and all that good Ah. stuff. Um,
1: so you met James Renner.
2: I did not meet James Renner uh, I know that he's um, in that I, yeah five, I know so. he's in that area uh we you know we're 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 chatty on Twitter occasionally, but I've not gotten to meet him in person yet um but I did also w- in my time with with that agency um and a little bit after did uh, sex crimes investigation and sex crimes task force and online predator task force and stuff like that. So I've, I've gotten to wear a lot of hats. I had a ton of fun as an officer, and now I'm sort of moved, obviously, into the the um, academic and freelance <laughs> investigation realm.
1: Okay. Now, before we get into uh, your TV show that you had on HL- HLN, Hell in the Heartland, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about your um your service with or your uh, contribution to the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases you're you're a a member of ASOC is that correct
2: i am now i'm i'm sort of a brand new member um so i yeah go. i haven't gotten to um jump in on any of the big fun with that yet i attended the conference in april Just as an attendee, I just sort of paid the public um, ticket price and and went and really, really enjoyed the presentations. I felt like I learned a lot and I met some fantastic people there. Um, I saw you guys. That was a, I think, a really important discussion about you know, how true crime is or true crime media is, is driving some, some very real aspects of, of case solution. Um, and then after the conference, I was, I was invited to join as a consulting committee member. So I'm excited to get to start work on that, um, in a, in a a more in-depth way. Very cool.
0: Wow and uh now every conference goer um was uh surveyed on their way out and and said that um unanimously our- our panel um with mike morford and john Lorden was was by far the best
2: uh, i i Do you have would any not comment, dis- uh, yeah that? no i would i would not dispute that um i think I went back through the line several times so i could you know answer the survey question more than once
0: oh okay so maybe you maybe you swung it uh incorrectly then well, thank you we appreciate that maybe there was a little uh...
2: Just kidding. I'm I'm skewing statistics for the
0: ballot box.
2: No, I'm just kidding. Um, No, it was it was it was a great panel. It was it was a great panel, and I think it's important that that was presented for uh, you know professionals um, for law enforcement people who are actively working on cases right now because you know as you guys discussed there there is a tendency in law enforcement to kind of a- approach things with this, this need to know basis. And that happens with outsiders. It even happens within an agency. Um, a lot of times you'll see where things are kind of partitioned off or, um, you know, they're compartmentalized. And I, I understand the, um, the intention to, you know, protect sources or protect an investigation and keep it pure. But I think that it, in some ways, it does a disservice to actually solving cases to have it too compartmentalized. And when you guys, you know, get people to pay attention and say, you know, these, these podcasts or when journalists or when citizens um, reach out to you and want to participate, that's not a bad thing. And it can actually um, be very, very helpful to an investigation. And so I think to have a room full of a couple hundred cops hear that and see it you know, see where it has actually worked is, is significant. I think, I, I really think it's good that you're, you're there doing that.
1: Thanks. Yeah. And I think it also uh, was to our benefit that we had John Lorden up there who was so articulate and well-dressed. So it really sure, He was in work, like a
2: three-piece uh, suit, like, I think. Uh, yeah.
1: He wasn't, but I mean, we can, we can <laughs> just assume that, I mean, he, he could be at
0: any moment.
2: That's right. Right. With monocle, <laughs> top hat, the whole nine. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, we know he's wearing a snappy jacket at all times. That's one at all times. Yeah, that's that is confirmed.
1: That is not a cold
2: case. Absolutely, that is
1: a, that is a confirmed. <laughs> that is no mystery. Yeah.
2: No, nope, yep. it's done. It's done. We'll wrap that one up.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for today.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. I'm happy to talk about it.
1: <laughs> but no, you do. Tim Tim uh, brought up all of your titles, and you do have a incredibly extensive biography i don't know how you fit it into one paragraph uh when someone asks you uh you know oh send a little blurb on yourself but
2: um how did you- uh, i don't either to be honest and sometimes i feel like it feels a little silly and i do feel a little tooting my own horn um but i also think I, you know i want to be able to say hey these are the things i bring to the table um if i'm being you know if i if i'm part of a conversation i want to be able to say i can be helpful not even you know for the 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 benefit of myself or looking a certain way but just so that i can say you know if there's a way that i can be useful here here are the you know the different experiences i've had that might um that that might translate into usefulness uh in cases or in you know publicizing um missing persons stuff like that
1: yeah exactly how did you end up going from the uh, career in law enforcement to being in front of the camera?
2: It's actually, it's been this um, sort of circuitous route. I I, I started life um, as a very young child, actually, in a professional children's theater company and grew up in professional theater. I went to, um, I, I live in Philadelphia now. I originally came here. To Philadelphia to go to the University of the Arts, um, the BFA acting program. So I actually kind of started life with the idea that I would be in front of the camera. Um, but I always, from the time I was a very little kid, had been fascinated by police work, by investigations. And uh, I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is. And I grew up in Gainesville in the 80s and 90s. And so um, between the Bundy case and the or Bundy cases, obviously, but Bundy's imprisonment was right around the corner from my hometown. And he was kind of the boogeyman of my childhood. I mean, everybody, we all talked about him at summer camp, everybody talked about it at school all the time. There was this um, very real fear of about Bundy um in my hometown and in my childhood, because you know we all knew he had escaped before we knew that he targeted college towns and and those of us who were you know elementary and middle school kids knew that he had moved on to you know in kimberly leach 's case that he was killing children, not just adults, and so he was this very real kind of haunting figure um, over my childhood and then You know, a year and a half after Bundy's execution, which, you know, like this was, you know, 20 minutes from my house, it was this huge deal. Um, We had the Danny Rowling case, the Gainesville student murders. And it was, I I think, just in my formative years, I had these two book ended, extremely well known, extremely vicious serial predators. And I think it just made me really curious to know how people like that are made, how they operate in the world. And so even though I thought I was on this path of going into theater or acting, um, I was always kind of had this side fascination with serial predation. And so at one point in my mid twenties, I just decided that what I really wanted to do was be a homicide investigator. And so I kind of packed everything in and got myself accepted to a federal police academy and started there. Um, and gosh, that was 1998, um, or 99, I guess I, when I first started attending classes and, when I was in the academy, I was only there a few days before I realized, you know, I had no money and and it was in the middle of nowhere in rural Ohio and I was bored a lot. So I decided to do a little light reading and um, picked up John Douglas's Mindhunter, which at that point was only a couple of years old. And I don't think I was... <sighs> two or three chapters in before I realized that this was what I was put on the earth to do, was to find this particular breed of criminal. So I I spent the rest of my time in law enforcement, always with the singular goal that that's what I would ultimately do, that I would, um, you know, earn my stripes, as it were, you know, in in traditional police work, and then eventually move on into the academic realm of studying serial killers. And so that yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> that's
0: amazing.
1: I'm a little confused because...
2: Back in front of the no, camera. No, 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 uh, because
1: you said uh, uh, Ted Bundy was like a boogeyman, but all we've heard is that he's like incredibly charming and he was <laughs> um, such a handsome guy.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny as somebody who was sort of genuinely afraid of him and, you know, however real um, the need for that fear was or wasn't, it it was very real to to us as kids in that area at the time and i'm not sure charming was anything i ever thought of him when i saw him in the news and in the papers and you know he's certainly not my type i'm you know more an adam levine kind of girl i'm, I'm not really digging the the uh the unibrow and um <laughs> dead eyes but uh, you know homicide. i guess to each their yeah. own um yeah. no i mean all, all kidding aside i think that that yeah. is um, that's some, that's very frustrating for, for people who, who spend a lot of time around victims or studying victims, or studying real crime scenes. Um, it is, it's quite frankly, it's disgusting. I know you guys don't mean this, but you, we do see a lot of it. And, you know, these, these people in social media who their hand, their handles are, you know, talking about, you know, Bundy lover and stuff. I mean, it's, it's gross and i think that as true crime as a genre is becoming more elevated and it's becoming much more intelligent in the last few years and more um exciting to people who really want um detail and nuance to their storytelling i think we're seeing more of an appetite for for uh, recognizing these people as as what they were as the monsters that they are and not just characters in in some sort of you know horror movie
1: yeah now would you say that um the intelligence level of the true crime podcasting uh coincided with the crawlspace podcast being released
2: well i mean that's that's the only conclusion that one can draw right exactly yeah Yeah. exactly
1: just just wanted to make sure yeah Yeah. yeah
2: I am expecting a kickback from this guys honestly. I have really blown a lot
1: <laughs> of smoke
2: in the last 15 minutes. So yeah, you're welcome.
0: Thank you. Checks in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> so uh we're talking about Ted Bundy and um we have a mutual friend who's uh working on a docu series sure about Ted Bundy and uh, yeah, of course yep. that's Celine Beth Calderon and her uh her docu series is called Theodore. Yep. And um how did you come to uh to know her and, and uh, work with her?
2: Um well, so like the rest of the world, I was first introduced to Celine Beth um just listening to an episode of My Favorite Murder. And in the, you know, there was an episode where she got called up onto the stage to talk to Georgia and Karen about the project. And I remember hearing that and just stopping dead and thinking, I cannot wait for this. This sounds like the first really um, honest discussion of Bundy and of the victims. So I was excited about that from the time I first heard it, uh, you know, a couple of years ago now. And um Then this spring, sort of some mutual contacts uh, introduced us via Twitter. And then she and I started chatting a little bit on Twitter and decided that we really um, share a passion for um, telling these stories from the perspective of victims or, you know, from the perspective of serving the victims and serving the officers who are involved. And so at that time, I had just landed on the case that I'm I'm currently investigating and that is also going to be turned into a doc series. And I asked if she was interested in in jumping on board that. And, um, that was April, I believe that we decided we both wanted to work together on that project. And, um, last week we signed up a, a production deal. So, um, Amazing. yeah, yeah. We're really excited. We also, Celine and I just had a fantastic weekend girls weekend together, uh, in DC at, at death becomes us. So we, we have become close friends and I think we're going to be good working partners too. Um, and I'm looking forward oh, to, to producing this, this series with her, um, and with arc media who, who's going to be, um, taking the helm.
0: That's, that's awesome. Okay. So, 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 yeah, this is this is great. So a lot of stuff coming together. Yeah. So okay. So just to keep things straight real quick, Celine's got her docuseries called Theodore. Yep. And you were on a show on HLN called Hell in the Heartland. Correct. And then you're also working on a another series with Celine, which uh, you mentioned you just you just signed a deal.
2: Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, That's Hell in the Heartland. On. It it is a lot going on. I'm trying to keep it all straight myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, Hell in the Heartland aired this past June on HLN, and that was the you know the culmination of about a three year investigation that um, that I worked on with a writer on the case of Laura and Ashley, um, Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman, two missing teenagers out of rural Oklahoma um and that was a four part series that that CNN picked up but was distributed on on HLN um this one is is it's completely different you know set of people it's a different case so that there's no you know confusion drawn the line there um and we're we're looking we're hoping it's going to be a a six part series and right now the working title is Amanda's mom um and it's it's called Amanda's mom because it's it's largely going to be um a discussion about the case and also an investigation of the case of a woman named Renee Bergeron, um, but sort of told through the eyes of her adult daughter. It's a, the case is 26 years old tomorrow. Actually Um, Renee was murdered 26 years ago and her now adult daughter who was 10 at the time kind of helps us sort through the story and sort through victim's life and and everything like that as we're also kind of actively working the case
1: jeez how do you find these cases
2: (laughs) um there are some benefits to to being ex-law enforcement and um this case in particular i have a good working relationship with the mobile county sheriff's office and um this you know i was looking for a cold case to maybe produce a documentary on and um, was kind of rummaging through some of Mobile County's cold cases. And I came across this one. And the first thing I did was um, I took home, you know, some of the, the information on the case and did a little digging to try and find any family members because I, I wouldn't really even consider doing something like this without the family's blessing. Right. And um, I reached out. I've, I've sort of figured out who her daughter was and, um, reached out to her via Facebook. And I, you know, I sort of sent this whole long message and I said, you know, I'm working with this production company, They're Emmy award-winning Peabody award-winning. We really want to, um, actually investigate the case and reopen it. And, you know, I kind of send this whole long bio and I see the three little dots kind of coming up, you know, as the person is reading and typing or whatever. And she just responded, I've been waiting my whole life for this. Oh, that's awesome. And um, yeah. And so I kind of felt from that moment on that it it almost didn't matter to me if, if it even ever got picked up as a series, but that I was going to be working on this case, at least until all avenues were exhausted. So um, I mean, I'm really excited that the production company uh, did agree that it's a fascinating case and that it's a story that deserves to be told um for for this victim for Renee um but also for for countless other victims and and maybe even you know we'll help serve some some investigative procedures going forward on how best to handle certain types of cases that maybe even with the best of intentions cases aren't always handled uh, you know the 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 way that they should be and and so i think we're going to try and really tell the story of this victim but also talk about um some some prejudices that we all have in society and and find ways to help investigators work around those um for the you know to come with the best conclusions
1: what sort of prejudices are you uh, speaking of
2: well this in this case in particular the victim was a sex worker um but it you know and i i, I hate there there is a sort of an assumption that anytime a sex worker case isn't closed, that, oh, the cops just didn't care because he was a sex worker. And I think it's actually much more nuanced than that. Because as I've been, you know, working with Mobile County on this case, it's very clear to me that for 10 solid years, they worked this case really, really hard. Um, But there are internal biases, biases that we all Kind of carry, maybe even without knowing it, and that those have a ripple effect in the way that we interview witnesses, the way we interview suspects, the way the ways that we proceed. I mean, the case was largely pursued at the time as a drug deal gone bad, um, but based on the way the body was was found on the particular level of mutilation of the body, there is no doubt in my mind that this was a sexual homicide and probably the result of a serial predator and um, was, was not a drug deal gone bad. So, you know, pursuing that angle, unfortunately, led to a bunch of dead ends. And then, you know, by the time you get past a certain a certain point, it's hard to go back and start over from scratch, um, particularly with a smaller agency who has new cases coming in all the time. So I, I kind of have the benefit, I mean, I, I, I'm up against the brick wall of the fact that it's 26 years old and a lot of people are passed or gone or moved away. Um but I do get to start over from scratch and dedicate a hundred percent of my attention to it um and and hopefully retrace it um without looking at it in terms of ranking victims. Do you know what i mean i I think that this sort of ranking of victims is something that we we all do, whether we intend to or not, and you know the reason that the working title is what it is. Is because I, I I find that you know we have all these cases that are very important and deserve attention. Um, you know, like Lacey Peterson and Shannon Watts, and you know, you always see this framing of this mother was murdered, this the you know missing mom, this in the Jennifer Dulos case is always shown as missing Connecticut mom. And you know, I was reading through all this, and by this point, I had been talking to Amanda for weeks and weeks, and I thought, you know, Renee was a mom too. She wasn't just this one thing. And I think that when we tackle an investigation... In terms of thinking about her as a mother as opposed to thinking about her as a sex worker, um, everybody, even the people you interview, the witnesses, everything, everybody views it differently and maybe remembers things differently or puts a different level of energy into, into you know, retracing their own steps. And I just, you know, I want to examine that, the way we discuss these things, the way in these cases are investigated.
1: Do you ever find yourself having some pretty candid conversations with Law enforcement with people who are investigating the case directly, about their behavior and maybe about their judgments of it.
2: Yeah I, well with this case in particular, I haven't yet spoken with any of the original investigators. in fact, I'm pretty sure that the guy who was on it um, for the first couple of years is, is passed away. but the the frank discussions that I have had with them on Renee's case um, you know at the agency now, is one where they openly acknowledge that mistakes were made um and you know that it was not about malice like i said th- they really did work this case they just worked it without some of the the benefit of of some of the training i mean the in 93 when this was um Again, you know, John Douglas and Robert Ressler and Ann Burgess had only just put out their their work on um, profiling and whatnot, so they, they didn't have the benefit of some of the tools that we have now. Um, but they also, you know, the the agency acknowledges that there were mistakes made, and they want to make those right. And I think that you know, all agencies are going to make mistakes, but the difference is. On how they either have a mea culpa and say, yes, let's fix this, or no, 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 we don't talk about that. And the agencies that say, yes, we, we, we want to fix this, are the ones that I think ultimately have the best success rate in closing cases and also, and probably more importantly, have the best relationships with their communities. And, you know, I think this is an example of that. And I'm excited for that. Hell in the Heartland you know, we kind of had to put a spotlight on some of the the shortcomings of the law enforcement in that area, um, particularly at the time that the girls went missing. And, you know, they kind of refused to participate. They refused to even acknowledge that there were problems. And that, you know, leaves the entire community still not trusting them. Whereas, you know, in this project, I'm excited that we're going to be able to showcase an agency that wants very much to do things right and is working really hard to to literally serve and protect their community.
1: That's great. Yeah. What do you think it is about a community like that who denies access to someone like you? Is it pride, or is it a combination of that and just historical um, behaviors?
2: So it's it's definitely the latter. It is the you know the pride and the combination. Of of not only behaviors, I mean, I think if you if you want, we could do a whole podcast sometime about the the uh, structure of sheriff's department in the Western expansion states and how they, you know, there there is a lot of autonomy to agencies um, to certain types of agencies, and that even though they have some checks and balances, now they went so long without. Uh, any real checks and balances that it, it fostered an atmosphere that was ripe for cons- ripe for um, corruption. And, it, you know, there is an element of that there. And then once they hit a certain point, just this refusal to, to look backwards at all, to simply say, well, no, we're just going to clear the chalkboard and start over. Well, that's great for you. And it's great for the agents that are currently working there. Um, but unfortunately, everybody who lives there has a memory, and that's why they you know if all they remember is that there was deep corruption and nobody actually ever addressed it, they're not going to believe you now they're not going to trust you now um, so that I, I think it's just it's a really yeah. complex web um, that that led to that particular dynamic that we had with with the agencies um, in that in that case,
0: yeah, and can you tell us a little bit more about that case? That uh, you covered on uh, Hell in the Heartland of Ashley and uh, Laura.
2: Well, it is it is absolutely still open and active, and they are um, they are still conducting searches. Um, I will say one of the things that I'm proud of, though the you know though the agencies will never say so to us. I did have a Bible family member tell me uh, a couple of months ago that one of the investigators said to her that the show opened up new leads and that they were actively pursuing new leads based on stuff in the show. So um, as far as I'm concerned at the end of it, that is really all that matters. I don't, I don't care that they, that they didn't like us as long as um, there, you know, some good came out of it for the families. So um, I do know that, you know, they, they did a bunch of searches a couple of months ago in some mines um, in the pitcher area. Which is, uh, it's an abandoned town now. It's no longer an actual um, city, but it's it was where a couple of the suspects were living at the time of the disappearance, and then also kind of shortly, uh, shortly afterwards. So it's it's still going. And if you know, if people have information, if anybody listening to this, you can go to the find laura bible find laura facebook page or twitter um or instagram i mean they've got all the social media and there is a ton of information there and they are also always accepting new information
1: i just want to uh catch people up who aren't familiar with that what is the case of, of Ashley and, and Laura?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. I guess, cool. I guess I swear. I was on it for so long and I, I have listened to enough, you know, podcasts and stuff about it. I, I, I guess I sort of assume most people know, it, but you're right. That's, that's not a fair assumption. So um, December 30th of 1999, Um, Laura Bible and Ashley Freeman were having a sleepover at Ashley's house um, in Welch, Oklahoma, which is a very, um, very tiny farming town. It's essentially all just farmland in the far uh, northeast corner of Oklahoma. So they're really like they're almost spitting distance from the Missouri uh, and Kansas lines right there in that corner. And they were having a sleepover for Ashley's birthday. The next morning about five AM, um, nine one one was called on a fire at the at Ashley Freeman's house. Uh, once the fire was put out, um, Ashley's mother and father ultimately, I mean, it took a couple of days to find all the remains, but Ashley's mother and father's remains were found in the fire and both of them had been um shot to death with a single shotgun blast. And the girls have never been found.
0: Jeez.
1: Not even a um incredible sighting anything like that that you were following up no
2: on? not really um i mean over the years of course there have been reports of sightings yeah. um but not, nothing has ever ever turned up and laura bible's mother um on you know the first day of the investigation it was it was mishandled i mean it was mishandled in ways i i can't even express the um the only remains that were found That first day after the fire were the remains of Kathy Freeman, uh, Ashley's mother, and they turned over the scene. Within a few hours, they turned over the scene to a family member um, saying that that Laura's I'm sorry, that uh, Kathy's remains were the only ones in the building. And the next morning at dawn. Laura's parents went over there to try and find anything, look for, you know, any clues. And they found the father's remains, Danny's remains clear as day right there in the rubble um, with boot prints on him. The, the you know, detectives had been walking all over his body in the fire uh, rubble through the first day of the investigation. Oh and yeah, and no, um, you know, no searches were conducted for the girl's that night um there were no um bolos put out nothing they said you know we'll 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 do all this tomorrow and it was actually never done it was several days later when Laura Bible's mother had them entered into NCIC as missing persons um and you know over the years a whole slew of tips have come in there were a couple of of searches at other people's properties done early on but essentially, it just kind of got dropped and forgotten by everybody except the families. And Laura's mother um, n- never stopped pursuing it 100% as an active investigation on her part. And quite frankly, all of the, the significant work that was done um, from the very first day to now um, was done by, by the families, um, uh, Laura's mother, especially, but also. Uh, Dwayne Vansel, who was Ashley's uncle, and so between them and some private investigators that they hired, um, that's all the real investigation that was done on this case until the last few years. Jesus!
1: Mm. Wow how how often do you continue uh, communicating with the family members?
2: Oh, I'm in pretty regular communication with um, with the Bible family. Um, We, uh, you know, I became pretty close with them. And I, I mean, I genuinely consider Lisa Bible. who was Ashley, I'm sorry, Laura's, um, cousin, but was raised as a sister, you know, an older sister, um, and loreen Laura's mother, I consider them close friends. Um, Lorene is sort of like an adopted mom to all of us. And I will, I don't, I can't imagine I'll ever not have them in my life.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's nice that, uh, that you've made that. Um, a, a nice relationship yeah. at, at least in, through such a uh, horrible circumstances. So, so the, the trailer was burnt down, there were two bodies found and there were two people missing to, to the two young girls, obviously. And it was that it?
2: No, I mean, yes, it, it, <laughs> that was it at the time. Um, you know, over the course of the time that, that we were investigating it, um, uh, for the show and and whatnot, we found a series of unsolved homicides that seem to be linked in some way or another um to the to the the same people associated with this case. So not directly, not like these people were then killed because of this case, but who seem to be connected to the same suspects. Um, but also all, you know, unsolved and and not closed cases. So there are a lot of unsolved cases in that little nook of, of Oklahoma, um, and a large number of them were, um, the responsibility of one particular state agent, um, who in, in my opinion is kind of the bad guy of the entire thing. Not that I think he went in and, you know, murdered anybody. Um, but these cases were his responsibility. And, uh, you know, it seems I I'd swear looking at it that he's got more unsolved homicides than solved.
1: What do you think that is? Just uh incompetence, uh laziness? Um,
2: sure, yeah. And uh I mean kind of all of the above, but I also think I mean I have my own theories um on his particular unique level of complicity, um, based on some associations he had with um with one uh confidential informant in particular.
0: Oh my. And
2: yeah, it's the kind of like I don't want to go too too much into it in a public way and yeah. and you know end up having to defend myself in a libel suit, which I believe I could. Um I believe the evidence is there, but you know, who needs that kind of headache right now? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, I have I have theories that it is a, a combination of in over his head um and perhaps Looked the wrong way, looked the other way at the wrong time, which then fostered something that led to all this.
1: Is this person still in a position of uh, authority? No. Okay. No,
0: no, but only because he's
2: retired, not because anybody removed him. Oh my him.
0: god! What about the uh, suspect mm-hmm. or suspects? Are they still out there?
2: So they, there were there was an arrest in April of two thousand seventeen. No, I'm sorry. April 2018. Um, There was an arrest of one man and in his arrest indictment, there were actually two other guys named both of those two others are deceased. So they you know, they kind of have attributed the entire thing to these three men, but they're actually charging The one man, Ronnie Busick, with all—they're charging him with four homicides. um, That you know, Danny and Kathy Freeman, and then they also have charged him with the murders of Laura and Ashley. Um, Although I think, obviously, they've set themselves up for a difficult time because there are no remains for Laura and Ashley yet. Um, I, I also, while I just, I personally, as an investigator, believe he was probably involved and and had some role in the whole thing, I do not believe that he is, you know, kind of the mastermind or by any means the, the only one who is alive and should be in custody. Does that make sense without saying too much?
1: (laughs) No, no, that, that makes total sense. (laughs) Um, I was going to ask, was his, um, did this all come to him because of anything new that you personally had investigated?
2: Well, again, I would say that, that, Ronnie's arrest was um, was you know the 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 basis of what led to his arrest was work done by Lorraine Bible by Laura's mom and Lisa Bible Broderick her her niece um, their investigative stuff and the tips that came into them were ultimately what led to um, Busick's arrest. I I do think that the, that the one thing that the show did, I mean, we were going down there for a couple of years and each time we went down, sort of our presence was a little larger and larger in terms of the number of cameras and obviously the scope of what we were doing. And I, I do think that probably um, our presence helped light a fire under some of the investigators who were, were kind of not moving really quickly. At the time, um, I, do, I do. I really believe that it's it's Lorene's work that ultimately uh, got them what they needed. But I I think there's certainly some benefit to an enormous national spotlight in terms of getting people to move on something. Does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Now, what's a uh, what's one of like your uh, you know your dream profiles? Whether it's a uh, you know living or. Or deceased as a uh, as an investigator. If you had the chance to profile someone out there, You mean there, to, that s- be? to
2: study somebody? Yeah. Gosh, that's a really that's a good question. I I, I wish you'd emailed it to me so I'd have a, a better prepared answer. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, no, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I, you know, I might say Danny Rowling only because it was it was you know he was such an important um impact on my life as as a kid and as you know a, a person in my hometown who our whole city was just um profoundly affected by his actions and i do think it's pretty curious that he you know he he committed some some homicides and some attempted homicides but nothing on the scale of what Happened when he got to Gainesville, and so I'm certainly of the mind that there's something in that in between time that I would probably like to know more about. I also I, I have some fascination and just a very very loose personal connection to um, Matthew Hoffman, who was um, the guy in Ohio who um, murdered uh, a woman, her friend, the woman's son and the dog but abducted the little girl who lived there and then held her at his house for a week um in a home that was filled entirely with leaves like the walls were lined with leaves and he made a leaf bed and he made leaf pillows and um there is some incredibly interesting psychology going on there and oh yeah you, you you've not heard this case this is no. not that long ago this is like 2009 or 2010 um in apple valley and mount vernon area of ohio which is just about an hour north of columbus um yeah this guy was bonkers and that it, and that's an official diagnosis by the way <laughs> yeah um, I, was gonna, I was gonna say that's yeah. sounded official <laughs> absolutely that is in the, the uh yeah. The, the DSM five, we now use bonkers in, in, yeah, in terms of, uh, psychopathy. No, he, I, I think, um, there's a lot more to him and I'm hoping to do, um, some, some work on studying him and maybe get some of his case stuff because he, he's got a very minor background. Like he has some arson, um, and, and stuff like that. And then he just butchered three people and held another little girl in a house lined with leaves. I mean, I'm not kidding you the whole, you can find pictures of it online. Um, the the walls were covered in, in bags of leaves and the basement was filled like almost knee deep in leaves. And that's where he held the girl, um, before she was rescued by police. So what's this
1: person's name again, Matthew
2: Hoffman, H O F F M A N. That's crazy. Yeah, he's he's bananas. Um and Where
1: where is where is he now?
2: He's in prison in Ohio. He was he's you know, in Ohio he, still. Yeah. Um and that's one, you know, that's a case that I I really want to dive into because that's another one where, you know, the prosecutors charged the case and sort of went after him. Has a burglary gone wrong? This whole thing of like such and such gone wrong is, I mean, it absolutely happens, but that is not what happened here. This guy was laying in wait in that house for hours before anybody came in and when he killed them, and I'm of the mind that um, he was targeting a little girl. She was the goal the whole time. And um, this idea that like he just happened to wait around in the house for people before they came home, and then he butchered them, chopped them up into pieces, and then hid the bags of body parts in a dead tree in a nearby park. Um, he's got some real tree stuff going on and and I'd really like to and he's alive I mean I could rolling is dead there's not you know gonna be a chance to interview him, but um i I wouldn't mind uh sitting down with Hoffman for a little while.
1: What are the odds that that'll happen
2: um well he is also a subject of a uh, a series of case studies a book i'm doing on a sort of a series of case studies um to help kind of support my master's thesis and so i i like to say that the chances are good i mean i guess it 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 totally depends on if he's willing to do it and if his lawyers are willing to let him do it um but I, it would just be for purely you know kind of academic purposes so i don't know i mean everybody cross your fingers for me that i get to spend some time interviewing Matthew Hoffman and find out what makes him tick.
0: Fingers
1: crossed. Oh man. Yeah. Fingers are crossed. And then we're going to, uh, we're going to say that uh, you've, I guess, unofficially confirmed that once you do this interview, you'll come on our show first before anyone else. Well, yeah, you hear, it. You, you've heard we it basically confirm that.
2: Yeah. I think so. well and I think you know what I think that's only fair because even though I've got this this book that I'm working on and there are a whole slew of case studies I think until you asked that question it's sort of like you know the whole thing where if you can't decide between two things flip the coin and no matter what the the coin tells you you'll know what your your actual first choice was right because if you if you say tacos or lasagna, heads or tails, and it lands on tails, and you're like, "Oh, I wish it was heads," then you know you wanted tacos to begin with, right? So, had you not exactly. asked that question, maybe I wouldn't have realized it, that Hoffman is is the one I really want to sit down with. So there you go. Yes, you deserve the first
0: interview. All right, you owe it all to us.
2: I, I do. Yes, I owe everything to Crawl <laughs> Space. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen.
1: I'm pretty <laughs> sure. I'm pretty sure Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about. Um, the influence that crawl space has on people <laughs> mentally.
2: I'm pretty sure that's what that was. Yeah. yeah it was just that, uh, uh the, his most recent book came up at a discussion group I'm in a few weeks ago. And I can't believe nobody said Tim and Lance were the, the real impetus for this. I, I guess I'll have to, Bring it back up
0: with mm-hmm. my group. Yeah, that's peculiar. Well,
1: I yeah, we, we try to lay low.
2: Yes, well, you know, modesty is is important. So. Yes, and
0: modesty is uh, drenched throughout this interview here today, uh, <laughs> Sarah.
2: Clearly, on all sides, on all sides. <laughs> toot toot. <laughs>